0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think if
1: you sort of take this hero's journey and you just, or even just in general, think about the story arc of beginning, middle and end, protagonist, antagonist, and you position what you have to share in this framework, it naturally will resonate with people. And it will become more memorable, Uh, it will will more deeply impact them, and crucially in today's society, it will become more likely that they can actually advocate for that story, and that they can tell that truth to someone else. Because as traditional media breaks down, and as the kind of the one-to-one approach of the TV industrial complex begins to lose its efficacy, that word of mouth and that oral tradition is actually coming back in a huge way in society. Um, so I think that that telling the truth well through the storytelling arc uh, is, is crucial if you want to build a business um, and if you want to help people understand reality as you see it.
0: Thank you, Shrini. It's a privilege and an honor. Yeah. So, you know, I was introduced to you by way of one of our recent guests, Kai High, and he told me that you had sold a ketchup company to Unilever. And as you and I were just talking about uh, before we officially hit record here, I kind of thought, well, that's like becoming the modern day Colonel Sanders. So before we get to how you even arrived there, I want to start with a question that I have found has always been really fun, informative and revealing. And that is, what did your parents do for a living and how did that impact the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: That's a great question, and I think it it actually does tell um, a pretty illustrative story about how I ended up where I am and what I do. Uh, My parents were both creatives and entrepreneurs, and so my mother was a producer, and my father was a director, and they worked in film and television production. So in, in some ways, they were business people, and in some way, they were storytellers, and fundamentally, they put business and storytelling together. So they sort of rose in their career at work, doing network television, um, doing kind of documentary work, and then they began to communicate on behalf of companies and corporations, focusing on technology, biotechnology, uh, medicine, things like that. And so I always really, from an early age, got to be witness to both the creative process of a truth well told, and in telling a story, and also witness to the entrepreneurial process and the business process of how do you develop relationships, how do you organize resources. And so I started actually, um, from an early age, playing with video cameras, shooting video, and because we had installed on our home computers, things like Photoshop and Premiere And Final Cut Pro, I was actually at an early age starting to make um, videos and things like that and and show them to my friends. And so that that actually kind of helped me catch the creative bug um, as well as the entrepreneurial bug.
0: Mm -hmm. You know. I'm curious, uh, one, what kinds of things about the entertainment industry that maybe outsiders uh, don't see or experience, uh, you, you know, you'd have to, to share having been up so up close and, and personal to it. Uh, and, and I'm curious, you know, having parents who worked in a creative field like the entertainment industry, which is pretty much known for, you know, huge risks with huge payoffs, did it inform your own perspective on risk?
1: You know, it's it's funny because entertainment is absolutely one of those risk and reward. Um, you know, it's at the high end of the risk and reward uh, trade-off spectrum. And the kind of work that they did communicating on behalf of companies was much more about um, corporate communications. It was much more kind of project-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't necessarily uh, predicate itself on something going viral or being really critically acclaimed or being really popular in order for them to see a benefit. Uh-huh. Um, so in some ways it wasn't necessarily that same creative uh, or entertainment dynamic. However, my first internship out of college was at a startup television station called Plum TV. And it was a television station that was started by one of the founders of Nantucket Nectars, who also went to Brown, which is which is how I found the company and it was focused on producing television and entertainment in sort of uh, ritzy resort areas during uh, summers and uh, holiday seasons around America. So I was actually, as a, as an 18-year-old kid, in the Hamptons, uh, but and I was living in a house on $50 a week for food and all my expenses and things like that. And what I learned from that is that in terms of misconceptions that people have about the entertainment industry, somebody in that job said – you know, it's the industries that appear the most glamorous from the outside uh-huh. that are actually the least glamorous on the inside. <laughs> and knowing people that work in fashion, knowing people that work in film, television, entertainment, it's it's absolutely popsicle sticks and glue. Yeah. Um, you know, all of the effort, all the resources put in the image um, is put in sort of delivering this simulacra, whereas behind the scenes, it's sort of famous for uh, dysfunction. Wow.
0: Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. So tell me something. When you were at Brown, I don't imagine your sort of mapped out career trajectory was, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a catch-up company. Uh, to walk me through how you go from Brown to starting a catch-up company.
1: Yeah, I would, I would love to. Well, it, it really starts, you know, even before um, Brown, I always was really skeptical of business and skeptical of big business. You know, someone who loved creativity, who loves storytelling. I almost, I felt like, like corporations and kind of the corporate mentality was actually at odds with that, you know, it was fundamentally competitive and extractive. Uh, you know, growing up in the nineties and hearing stories of sweatshop labor and, uh, environmental pollution, you see these kind of negative externalities and you see corporations really portrayed in the media of doing bad, um, And what I learned at Brown in taking some classes and in really just opening my eyes up a bit was that that wasn't the only way to do business and that there are other businesses that are formed around principles, um, businesses that are formed around values, uh, that actually when their business grows, the positive impact that they have on society grows and it creates an incredible flywheel for that impact and for that benefit. Because in our society, which is organized around business and economics and capitalism, that's how something grows. And I think you see that in a lot of the one-for-one models uh, of late that have been uh, growing sort of from entrepreneurial businesses to now uh, global enterprises. And I think that even something like, you know, IKEA, for instance, which built into its business model, is encouraging people to work with their hands to um, to minimize the amount of carbon that's produced in the shipping process uh, and to actually build something and be part of that no matter if you're in an urban or suburban environment you know he, IKEA is not a for pro, is not a, a nonprofit um, and I don't even know really how they think about their social mission in depth yeah. but just getting people back in touch with building things I think is a, is a positive thing. So back to your question, you know, starting in sort of with an interest in filmmaking and television and creativity, at some point I realized, you know, I can teach myself this stuff Um, and modern culture and media sort of studying linguistics, these kind of things came very natural to me. But what didn't come natural was economics and was finance. And it was sort of a dark art to me that I was a little bit scared of, but kind of interested and I knew that there was some power behind that. And so it was in learning uh, economics and, and taking further classes in entrepreneurship that I realized that that economics, finance, and business is a really powerful tool to create change, um, to organize resources, to motivate people, um, to have a contribution to society, and enables others enable others to have a contribution to society. And uh, of course, after that, I ended up on a uh, an investment banking, uh, high-frequency trading desk, which is of course the sort of the polar opposite of purpose-driven business. Uh, but that was incredibly uh, educational in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, at that time, and you know, when we were at Brown, uh, my, my co-founder Mark Ramadan and I started to talk about how bizarre it was that across every aisle of the supermarket, there was a better version of every product. And this was an idea that had, um, you know, first been planted in my head by another friend of mine, um, one of our original co-founders named Brandon, who said, you know, when you look at mustard, there's Dijon mustard, there's yellow mustard, there's sweet mustard, there's honey mustard, but there's only one ketchup. And it was a little bizarre that people were interested in organic dairy. They were interested in grass-fed beef, uh, farm-to-table dining, uh, but here in ketchup, This quintessential American food, there was no variation, and it really resembled, at the time, uh, ingredients that resembled industrial products more than they resembled food products. Mm -hmm. They had the same bottle shape, um, they had the same material, the same kind of positioning, and that was really how we started to recognize that there was an opportunity here, and that there was a white space to serve a market and to serve people, uh, in a way that they had never been served before by creating not just a cheaper version of ketchup, a commodity version of ketchup, but actually a better version of ketchup that was made from real food ingredients that was all natural, uh, and that had character to it that was able to tell a story and provide something for people to connect with.
0: Mm. You know, something you said earlier, uh, really struck me. You said, you know, uh, story is a truth well told and I, I couldn't let that go. I wanted to come back to that and have you expand on that in more detail. Uh, talk about what you meant by that, how it is applied in your business and how other people could apply it in their lives and their own work.
1: Great. That's a great question. And full disclosure, I believe that is the advertising agency McCann Erickson's slogan. Okay. So I did not make that up. That, <laughs> I think their slogan is truth well told, but yeah. you know, you, that's the other thing is I think Picasso said, uh, good artists copy and great artists steal. So I nicked that one from McCann. Um, but truth well told is, you know, it's the concept that, that the context that you position something in and the way that you share information can really make an impact on whether or not your message resonates or not. Now, human beings... We co-evolved with stories around campfires. Stories are how we make meaning. And I think that look if you look back to kind of the fundamental hero's journey that Joseph Campbell researched and looked at ancient texts, uh, looked at kind of the Vedas, looked at the Roman and Greek uh, myths, look at the Norse North sagas, there was this cycle in which you have a character, a protagonist who we'll call the hero, they they live in their world, and then all of a sudden there is something that makes them change. There's a call to action. There's a reason for them to change uh, the status quo of their life, and they're, they're called to this action, they're called to this challenge, and they go through um, a journey that that ultimately they grow from, that they triumph in. And then they bring the knowledge from that journey and from those challenges back to society and they begin contributing. And I think if you sort of take this hero's journey and you just, or even just in general, think about the story arc of beginning, middle, and end, protagonist, antagonist, and you position what you have to share in this framework, it naturally will resonate with people and it will become more memorable. Uh, It will will more deeply impact them. And crucially in today's society, it will become more likely that they can actually advocate for that story and that they can tell that truth to someone else. Because as traditional media breaks down and as the kind of the one-to-one approach of the TV industrial complex begins to lose its efficacy, that word of mouth and that oral tradition is actually coming back in a huge way. In society, um, so I think that that telling the truth well through the storytelling arc uh, is is crucial if you want to build a business um, and if you want to help people understand reality as you see it.
0: Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? It does. Um, and it raises another question, as you might imagine. You, know, you mentioned the calling, and you also said that uh, working in high-frequency trading on Wall Street was the exact opposite of value-driven business. And I'm curious if part of your calling came at that time that caused you to leave it.
1: Yeah, you know, I think is, and obviously the the listeners who have listened to Kay's story maybe heard a little bit more about this. And, you know, I I don't think it was necessarily like I was, quote unquote, like so like fed up with it or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I came to a realization working in finance that it was really intellectually stimulating. It was a great learning process. And I actually was fortunate to work with really incredible, intelligent people of very high character um, some of whom took me under their wing and developed me. And um, I'm extremely grateful for that experience. However, no matter how good you are at your job, you are not making an impact on culture. You're not making an impact on society. The, when you walk out of that office building, you see no evidence of your work. And what I love about working in food uh, and working in the what, what, what in industry parlance is called you know consumer businesses or consumer packaged goods is that the work that our team does here and the work that we do actually shows up on restaurant tables. It actually shows up in recipes. It shows up in people's refrigerators. It shows up at family dinners. It becomes part of the fabric of American food culture. And I feel like having an opportunity to shape that Uh, have an opportunity to help write the next chapter of American food culture and really make an impact, that's fundamentally different than creating trading systems or enabling investors to have maybe a slightly higher return that they would get elsewhere. Extremely important work to be a fiduciary. Extremely important work to look after the resources and the treasure of pension funds, of um, individuals and, and organizations who have saved, and I think that the that finance and financial technology is crucial. Um, it is not necessarily inherently good or evil, but for me, for my purpose and for my calling, I see having that impact kind of in people's lives, earning our earning a place in culture, and and using business for this force of positive impact uh, that that really resonates. Uh, and can be seen and smelt and touched and tasted, that to me is much more rewarding.
0: You know, a question that comes from this, you know, starting a, a catch-up business isn't like, you know, starting some sort of online project. I, I'm curious, what does the beginning of starting something like this look like? Like, what are the challenges that you guys run into? Um, I mean, how do you begin with something so ambitious? I love that question.
1: Um, you know, it really is, it begins with a beginner's mindset as as, um, as they say. And it comes first from rather than making proclamations or statements. And of course, you have to have a thesis and you have to have a vision, as we did. But we really took a design thinking approach. And the, the design thinking approach, which is about observing and diagnosing a problem uh, and then beginning to prototype and then refine and then launch and adjust um, and really going back to that iterative development process, I think that that's part, one of the parts of business that is fundamentally creative rather than fundamentally competitive. Mm-hmm. And I'm really thrilled to see how design thinking and the methodology of industrial design, the methodology of, of great leading companies like IDEO have begun to permeate um, the business world and, and business strategy thinking. For us, it really started saying, OK, well, we're not chefs. We love to eat, you know. We believe that there can be something better here. Um, we're interested in food. We're interested in educating ourselves, but we're not going to go out there and say this is the world's greatest ketchup and point to something and say we made this and um, you know it's good for all these reasons. You should buy it. Instead, we said, okay, let's develop a bunch of prototypes in the universe of what could be the right answer, knowing that none of them are going to be perfect. And we researched the history of ketchup. We learned that it had this 500 year history beginning in Southeast Asia and started as a fish sauce. We learned that tomatoes were only actually incorporated in the recipe um, once it got to Europe. Uh, We learned that that it's actually contested where it even comes from if tomato ketchup is a European or an American invention. And we learned different homemade recipes, we learned industrial recipes. We created six different recipes for ketchup and then we slipped little invitations into our friends' mailboxes that said, Sir Kensington invites you to a ketchup tasting. People thought we were out of our minds, but they were used to it at this point. <laughs> so jacket required. They showed up. We're serving drinks. We're playing uh, music. Our friend is DJing. And we have people fill out these scorecards where people are at, we're, we're asking them questions and totally blind taste tests. We gave random numbers to all of these ketchups. And we asked, does this taste good? You know, a scale of one to five. Would you eat this every day? Does it taste like ketchup? Does it taste healthy? Uh We would ask these questions that probably if you look, you know, a survey designer or a focus group person would probably, um, you know, absolutely poo-poo this approach. But um, very non-scientifically, we got this really human feedback from people and we turned a focus group really into a party. We threw this party and that's how we got the feedback to figure out what was the, actual recipe that we should move forward and then bring bring to market so it started with listening and it started with curiosity and it just continued and you know that answers the question of how did you get to your recipe which of course has changed significantly since the beginning Uh then there's also well how do you go about you know manufacturing something right you're not just spinning up an amazon uh you know cloud account you're not just uh you're not you know you at the time there was no legal zoom yeah uh at the time there was no fresh books so and this is you know we started this business in 2010 And um, apologies to anyone, LegalZoom or FreshBooks had you already (laughs) launched by then, but you you get the idea. Yeah. It was very manual. And we had to go, we went to, we got to go to trade shows and industry uh, gatherings where we could learn about all the different manufacturers that could work with us. We learned about the freight system. Uh, We learned about the way that distributors mark products up and work with retailers And some of it, it we were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And some of it, we were like, that makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. And, Srini, what's amazing is I think that we're seeing a lot of change in retail. Um, We're seeing a lot of change in consumer preferences, obviously driven by the demographic shift from baby boomers being the primary purchasing demographic to millennials being the primary purchase demographic. And their tastes are changing because of the internet and also commerce is changing because of the internet and the rise of Amazon um, and and all of these different online retailers. But there's a lot of stuff in the go-to-market infrastructure of American retail that does not make sense and is not going to be around for a long time. Um, and it's, it's been very interesting to see that, see that shift. Mm-hmm.
2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com/style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com/style Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50
1: pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
0: Two other questions about this this early phase. Um, one, what were the the early challenges, and when did you know that it was going to succeed?
1: Well, I, you know, everything is a challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of early challenges, I, I think it really can't be understated that as an entrepreneur, you have to love the journey. The journey is the reward, and the journey is uphill, and. You have to remember that what feels like friction is actually polish. There are going to be so many challenges along the way. Things are not going to go as you plan. Getting from point A to point B is not a straight line. And you've got to have the presence of mind to relish in that journey. That was not something I was particularly great at from the beginning. But I think I've been able to get much better at that, you know, as has my team. Whether it's delivering or whether it's creating, um, you know, Tens or hundreds of thousands of the same product within spec—you know—that's really challenging. It's got to have the same acidity. It's got to have the same sweetness. Uh, the label has to be positioned properly. The lid has to be screwed on every jar properly, or else you have a food safety issue on your hands. And we worked with a, um, a co-manufacturer, like a commercial kitchen, in order to be able to produce all this, but um, and who, who are obviously professionals. But you still have to be very hands on in managing that process. The other thing I think that first time entrepreneurs underestimate is how challenging sales are. And I think what what you realize as an entrepreneur is oh, I'm just a salesperson. That's kind of the yes, you have to have a vision and you have to be able to organize people and you have to be able to, um, to plan resources and all those kinds of things and define product. But at the end of the day, if you are not a salesperson, then your business goes nowhere. Attention is such a scarce resource that even good ideas fail every day. And what's really challenging about this and what creates a lot of cognitive dissonance is that we see these wildly successful things succeed with no sales effort or no marketing effort. Look at fidget spinners, right? Selfie sticks, mm. hoverboards. The, this is a very recent phenomenon that we look at, or we look at YouTube channels with hundreds of millions of views. Um, occasionally, there is something that breaks through, and it does happen. You know, things do go viral, but man, those are few and far between, and you've really got to focus on a concerted effort to, to sell your product, gain distribution, and earn your place in culture. Yeah.
0: Well, it's funny you bring up virality in particular, because I've noticed, you know, uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of stuff that has done extremely well content wise recently. But the funny thing is, like to get to the point where we can produce content like that has been eight years in the, in the making, you know, and exactly. you often see virality happen, you know, and if people don't have anything to back it up, it's, you know, you're, you know, in the spotlight for a week and an afterthought a week later.
1: Right, right. That that yeah. I mean, it it can just come and go like that. And and then you also look at you know the Beatles, mm-hmm. famous for um, playing show after show, night after night in total obscurity in Hamburg, Germany. Yeah. Or you know the Smashing Pumpkins for years and years and years in complete obscurity. Uh, Billy Corgan having to like get his whole band off of heroin and get them in the studio to produce these albums man, if I were in that situation, I'd be like, forget this, you know, (laughs) this is not going anywhere. Yeah. And then you get a bullet with butterfly wings and it changes a generation of music.
0: So speaking of selling, um, you sold Kensington to Unilever. Um, tell me what that moment was like. And more importantly, what misperceptions do you think that people who haven't experienced something like that have about moments like that?
1: that? That's a great question. Um, so could, could you just repeat that? Cause I want to yeah, make sure that absolutely. I can justice so, your first part.
0: Yeah. So tell me about the experience of selling a company to Unilever, which, you know, by all accounts is a huge success. But the thing that I'm actually much more curious about is what misperceptions do people who haven't experienced something like that in their lives have about moments like that?
1: Okay, excellent. Um, so the experience of, of selling Sir Kensington's to Unilever was, it was, you know, fantastic and in some ways, surreal. You know, when we started, we, we were literally just kind of in our dorm room, you know, making ketchup over stoves. And we had this sort of fanciful idea of a fictional Victorian gentleman named Sir Kensington, who's a spice trader and a Victorian naturalist, and he embodies this character of integrity and charm that um, typify our products. And people thought we were crazy. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of a bizarre thing to think that anything like this could really become part of mainstream culture. But over time, as we built this, we realized that this wasn't just about novelty. It wasn't just about a gimmick. This was ultimately about the power of food, the power of food to connect people to each other and to community, the power of food to connect us all to nature, which is something that we're also starved for. Um, and also the power of food to, to make people curious and to um, really get them to ask questions about where things come from, about how things are grown, um, and really think about what they're eating and what's going on in their body. Now, having Unilever take note of this and see what we're doing and see an alignment in our mission to bring integrity and charm to ordinary and overlooked food, and their sustainable living plan, and the fact that they were also founded not by a fictional Victorian gentleman, but by actual Victorian gentlemen uh, people that recognized the power of soap to eliminate bacteria and to contribute to human health and wellness. Um, founded by uh, Victorian gentlemen that, that actually created uh, civic institutions for their workers, they built a town to produce soap and they actually thought about stakeholder value rather than just shareholder value that ethos which dates back to the late 1800s is exactly the same ethos that we run our business with today and the way that they run their business as well and so it's actually just such a fantastic partnership between these companies of you know absolute different order of magnitude Uh, different scale of business, very different product lines in some cases, but with the same ethos coming together, that to me was surreal and it was fantastic because it was a recognition that what we're doing now and what we're putting all this work into will actually live beyond us. This is something that with the ethos that they have and the approach to business can be part of American food culture and global food culture for generations to come, all you know, within the realm of long-term thinking. Mm-hmm. So I know that you were more interested in the second part of this question than the first, um, but I wanted to make sure to, to share a lot about that. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, in terms of what this moment is like, actually going through it, you know, from the inside out versus people on the outside in, I think, the, you know, a lot of people may see an exit as kind of the finish line yeah. or the summit. Um, you know, it, it's where you delivered what you set out to deliver. And, you know, maybe people say, oh, are you, you know, no one actually said this to me, but I can imagine someone saying, oh, now you can retire and like spend your time like idly or anything like that. <laughs> you know, to me, yes, it's fantastic that we are able to deliver to our investors uh, and to our team um, what we had promised to deliver um, in terms of resources. But this is just the, the, this is just the beginning of a new beginning. This is another stop on the journey. And what I tell my team is we're not at the summit of the mountain We're we're still climbing the mountain, but we found a nice little sort of, um, mountain pasture Mm -hmm. and we, we should, we can celebrate. Let's have a little snack. Uh, let's put out our, our picnic blanket and enjoy the Vista. Um, Let's celebrate as we should, but let's keep moving. Let's go to these new heights. Yeah. And so, to me, like I don't see this as something that you know I'm I'm done. I mean, this business is extremely personal to me, and we are so um, we're only at the tip of the iceberg in terms of fulfilling our mission. We're probably not even known to the vast majority of your listeners. Mm-hmm. And in order to make a true impact on food, impact on the food system, and an impact on food culture, an impact on human culture. We need to become a household name. Yeah. And the, the tools and the resources that Unilever will bring um, at our fingertips is what's going to enable us to have the impact that will do justice to the original vision of Sir Kensington.
0: Wow. Really, really cool. Do you, do you think about money differently now that you've sold the company?
1: I think, um, you know, I, I've always it's it's been a it, thinking about money has been a journey for me for sure yeah. um, and i think that i've i've realized over the years that money is not an end in itself money is a measurement of value value can can take many forms uh, but money is a measurement of value and most importantly money is a tool money is a tool to achieve something that you want to achieve it can be motivating um, it can afford certain comforts. Uh, it can it can enable resources, enable other resources to be kind of within your control. I think that, you know, to be totally candid, you know, for me, what – I was never someone that was, you know, motivated by getting rich. I, w- I was motivated by creating something that lives beyond me. Um, but it is – I will say that it is fantastic to not have to worry – about, you know, as an entrepreneur who had a very sort of tumultuous um, and high risk, high reward trade-off, that that was the sort of bargain that I had created with myself. Now I have a three-month-old baby boy and I don't have to worry about whether I can send him to college or not. You know, those kinds of things, I think, removing the worry from the equation and removing um, any sort of that that doubt from the equation that frees up my brain to focus on the truly important stuff and to move from a scarcity mindset into an abundance mindset yeah. now, I'll also have to say that you know, I would say in a perfect world, you should be able to to make that move without actually getting money because it's really all about what's in your mind. you know if you're worrying about something. You can either change the world around you, or you can change what's in your mind, and the, your mind is the only thing that you truly have control over. So, I think with a meditative practice, with a mindfulness practice, um, you you can actually let's say that you do worry about money or worry about anything. I think that you can bring the right amount of intentionality to it to solve that challenge without having to build and grow and sell a company. But I will say that it does it does afford me a, a wonderful level of peace of mind.
0: Mm. You know, uh, one of the other questions I have for you, I mean, have you had a chance to go back and talk to students at your alma mater? And what would you say to both parents who are listening and to young people who are in your position or who are, you know, young people uh, who are starting their careers, given where you're at now?
1: I have a I have a long time ago and I actually will um, in a few months be going back to Brown to uh, to to give a keynote there uh, for one of their summer programs. You know, this one is this is a challenging one because everybody's different, but I would say curiosity has always been, I think one of my personal greatest assets because it gets me to ask questions and it gets me to learn more and it gets me to form my own independent hypotheses about the world. And that has always served me really well. Um, and I think curiosity coupled with empathy then gets you into that place of okay, what are the problems and how do we how do we solve them for people? Which is fundamentally what creating value is is, is solving problems for people. So I would say you know focus on that curiosity, um, but maybe at a, at a higher order, take time in solitude or wherever you do your best thinking to think about your your purpose, to think about what motivates you, um, what your personal purpose and personal mission are. And you may not be able to put it into words. It may be more of an emotion. But if you do that practice regularly, you know, maybe yearly, over time, you're going to have a much clearer and more clear sense of what your purpose is and how you can live your truth. Sometimes those are hard questions to engage in. They're always challenging questions, but I think that that will serve you tremendously well. Because as you go to make any major decision in life, you can always go back to this sort of higher order purpose, this goal uh, or this strategy that um, you really believe in and you can contribute to. That allows you to use your time best.
0: So you, you've mentioned mindfulness uh, several times. So I, I'm curious what your day to day rituals, habits, routines look like because it, it seems to me when I when I look at people that I've interviewed and pretty consistently across almost high perform all high performers, they have a certain structure to the way they go about their days, and I, I think you know that, that's critically important. I'm curious what yours looks like. Uh,
1: that's a great question. So um, you know, on a good day, I, I wake up and I go for a run. Um, that doesn't happen every day, but I, I do some of my best thinking when I'm running, and then um, I get a little coffee um, sometimes from a from a shop early in the morning. Take it up to my apartment, and then uh, I do meditate every day um, for 20 minutes, which is a it's a fantastic you know uh, the kind of thing that you you don't necessarily feel in the moment exactly what it's doing, but I think over. The about year and a half since I started meditating, I definitely feel more present um, and an expansion of consciousness that allows me to be more aware and more intentional. And then uh, I typically eat some breakfast and then, on most days, head to the office. And uh, you know, this is some something that I want to be more intentional about, uh, but. There's a there's a great essay by Paul Graham called Manager's Schedule Maker's Schedule. Shrini, have you ever read that? I, I think, think I have.
0: I, have. I, I know of it. Um, I have Paul cool. Graham's Hackers and Painters book, so I don't know if it's in that one, but I, I know what you're talking about. It may it may, be, it may also
1: just be on his, his website. You can yeah. put in the show notes. But he has this point that like there's two kinds of schedules. There's a manager's schedule, which is exactly what you'd look at in like an at-a-glance day planning calendar where you see uh, like lines at every hour, and there are slots in this calendar. And you can slot people in, you can, you, can, you can slot other things in, people can grab time in your calendar, and you go from meeting to meeting. And you're present in those meetings, you sort of have that function, you have that meeting, and then you move on. Um, and then there's the maker's schedule, which is that to get in a state of creative flow, whether you are writing something, or you're developing code, uh, or you're working with something visually, maybe it's graphic design. To get in a state of flow, you really need to put yourself in a place to do that. It's going to take you 15, 20 minutes to ramp up. Then it's maybe going to take you an hour or two hours. Time is going to fly by. And then you're going to run out of creative energy and you're going to wind it down. Now, you can't really get anything done in a one-hour period if, you're on the, you know, if if you're making something. So a maker's schedule is more like half-day increments. Whereas a manager's schedule is more like hour increments. One of the challenges I have that I wanna be more intentional about is that I am a manager and a maker. So I do need to attend meetings. I do need to approach my calendar in a slot basis and it fills up. But also my role at this organization is that, in my responsibility, is to paint a vision for the future of where are we going. Uh, it's to set the cultural standards of, of what, what do we believe in and, and in detail. Um, It's to often create compelling, creative content, both visual content uh, and verbal content of applying that storytelling approach and showing the world how we fit into culture, helping our sales teams and our marketing teams be better advocates in a purpose-driven way. And that kind of stuff, you can't like slap that into 25 minutes. So... I think that I, uh, that's something that I want to I work on more and more, but, you know, maybe if you talk to me in a year, I'll have nailed that. <laughs> and, then, and then almost every day, at the end of every day, I cook. I love to cook. Um, you know, cooking for me is something that is very, it's cultural, because I always love to learn about different food cultures, whether it's Italian or Indian or Chinese. Um, and, and it's also something that is very tactile. I love to work with my hands. I love, frankly, the control element. You know, anything that goes wrong in the kitchen, you can fix it in like 10 minutes. Anything that goes wrong in in the office and business could take (laughs) 10 years to unwind some of that stuff. So um, some of those things are irreparable. So there's there's an element of control, an element of creativity. And also I love cooking for my wife um, because it's one of the ways that I – one of the small ways that I can give back to her because she's provided – and enabled me in so many ways. So I love to cook, and then um, I love to be present with her, and I love to read. Awesome.
0: Well, I think that makes a fitting sort of way to finish with my my final two questions. You know, you mentioned reading, and my next question was going to be, um, what is one book that you would recommend to our audience that has uh, had a profound impact on your life and your work?
1: Oh God. Oh man, this one is so good. I can only get one. Can <laughs> I get can get more than one? Okay. 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 So the first one everyone has to read immediately. It's called Sapiens. Yep. Great book. By Noah Yuval Harari. Yeah. Extremely important. It's a master narrative. So you're going to have criticisms of it. There are many criticisms of it. But, you know, cut the guy some slack. <laughs> I, I, I think it's, I think it, that is that is truth well told. Yeah. Um, the second, uh, which I know you, you've you um, mentioned before, is uh, The War of Art. Uh-huh. And that, that, that book is fantastic about sort of your own relationship with your willpower and your own sort of embracing of creative confidence and a, a bias towards action, which I recommend everyone read. And then the third is a really cool book that a friend of mine named Thomas Thwaites wrote. Um, this one is less well-known, but it's called The Toaster Project. Have you heard of this? I haven't. So this guy is at um, – uh, the Royal College of Art in the UK, and he's in his 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 master's thesis. He says, "I'm going to make a toaster from scratch, completely from scratch, which means that I cannot use any man-made elements in the toaster. So I can't just like buy um, copper wire and plug it into the toaster. And so and so instead, he actually goes to copper mines in England and harvests, captures copper from copper ore and, and these, these copper pools using these old sort of metallurgical techniques. He goes to mines and he, he mines mica, which is something that's used in the, the heating elements and coils of this toaster. Um, and, he, and he figures out basically how to make a toaster um, from scratch. And his point is... And it's extremely hard to do. And he, he can't, you, I won't spoil the ending, but he can't obey all of his own rules and guidelines. But here's something that, you know, in, he's English. So he says, you know, for six quid or six pounds that they, they sell at the corner shop, it, it would take me thousands and thousands of dollars to replicate this thing by myself using no, um, you know, infrastructure or technology. And the point that he's trying to make is how incredibly interconnected our supply chains are, and how there's not one single entity or not even one single organization that from soup to nuts can produce a toaster. Our economy is so interconnected, and it's so interconnected to um, ecology and to the environment and the impact that we have on it. And we rarely stop to look at something like a toaster and recognize the deep, deep supply chains and interconnectivity of this thing. Wow. Um, that, that's a mind-blowing one. So
0: I think you know those three books together are excellent. Okay. Very cool. Um, well, I have one last question, which I know you've heard me ask, uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: This is, it's, it's a great question and a really hard question. Um, because I think that the answer that was, that was given by Mr. Gunderson on your show of a very clear sense of purpose is indeed absolutely what makes someone unmistakable, but there's a little bit more. And I would say that that has to do with someone's panache, someone's kind of chutzpah, someone's dramatic or theatrical approach to how they choose to be remembered, um, how they tell stories, what they're known for. Uh, And I think that requires a lot of creative confidence and it requires a lot of consistency. But I think that what makes someone unmistakable is when they're not just a person, and they're not just a friend, but they're also a character. They're a character that comes in and out of your life. Uh, and I, I love unmistakable people like that.
0: Mm. Well, I, I can see now why Kay referred you to us. Um, where can people learn more about you and your work? I'm guessing grocery stores.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely go to grocery stores. Go to Whole Foods. You go to SirKensingtons.com, Follow us on Instagram at Kensington's um, for great food and recipe ideas.
2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch.